Hey, this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com.
Hey, this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. Are in a series that we are calling The Lost Parables of Jesus. We kicked this off last week. And here's the thing, I just need to let you know that these parables aren't really lost. It's not as though like there was some archaeologists in the Middle East last month that were digging around and found some scrolls that had stories Jesus told on them. And they were like, we've never seen these before. They're not in the Bible. And, and, and that's not what we're doing. All right. So like there is no lost parables. Rather, what we're doing is we're looking at some parables, some stories that Jesus told that have the central theme that there's something lost in every one of the stories. And all Three of our parables, one we looked at last week, the one we're looking at today and next week, are all found in the same chapter in the Bible. They're all found in Luke chapter 15. And so last week we talked about the parable of the lost, anyone? Sheep, that's right. There was a lost sheep. Today we're going to look at the lost coin, and then next week we're going to look at the story of the lost son, which is maybe the most famous of the lost parables. You probably heard it referred to as the story of the prodigal son. So today we're going to hop into that middle story, the one about the lost coin. Now before we do so, there's some frequently asked questions that people have when we start to talk about parables. So we're going to answer those questions. So first off, what in the world is a parable? Well, first, here's my definition. We'll put it up here. A parable is a short story with symbolic speech and word pictures that makes a point. Okay, so it's pretty cool, right? So we're going to tell a short story. It's got a purpose to it. There's words and things that mean one thing, but they're actually like a symbol of something bigger that's going on. So number two question people ask is, well, why did Jesus use parables? Of all the things he could do, why is he using parables? And my first answer to that question is because he was an excellent communicator. When we think about people who are great communicators, maybe you think of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in a speech that he would give, like a great orator, or maybe you think of Billy Graham. But you realize, like, Jesus lived in a time before there were PA systems. He lived in a time before you could have amplified voice, before there could be recordings of your voice, before there were podcasts, before Spotify was even a thought. That's when Jesus lived, right? And so people wanted to hear Jesus. Like, they were flocking to him by the thousands to hear him. And I don't know if you've been around thousands of people, but it would be hard to hear one individual in a mass of people. Last night, my wife and I, we went to a, a concert thing down at uh, T-Mobile Center. They said there's 8,000 people in the room. I didn't hear one individual that wasn't amplified. Like to hear one person speaking, Jesus was addressing multitudes of people. And so can you imagine if you were there and you wanted to hear Jesus, there'd probably be a thing in the crowd of like, shh, quiet, I want to hear him. I want to hear him. And if Jesus was a boring communicator, do you think anybody would want to hear him? No, there was something about how he told stories and it was engaging with people that people were like, I've got to hear this guy. So I think Jesus used parables because he was an excellent storyteller and people connect with stories. We all love a good story. That's why you watch your stories on TV. That's what my grandma used to call them. Yeah, you got your stories on TV, all your little, all your little TV shows that you want to see with all their little stories, right? We love stories. And Jesus is an excellent communicator. And, and, and not only was he a great communicator, but he was doing something that no one else could do. See, Jesus, we believe, preexisted before he became a man as still God. Like in the beginning was Jesus, like he was still there. He was a part of the triune God, which is a wild concept and a thought. But when he took on flesh, he came to earth and he began to tell us realities about spiritual things that no one knew. And so now we have this God man, Jesus, walking around. And he's saying, let me tell you what it's like in the kingdom of God. And he's a human. And he's saying, let me, let me try to express this in words that you know. So you know what a sheep is, you know what a farmer is. Well, let me have the symbolism to communicate some truths that you wouldn't know about who God is. And in fact, let me tell you what the heart of God is. This is how our God is. This is what he desires. This is his love. This is the kind of God we serve. So he was this ultimate bridge of amazing communicator to share with us truths that we would never know, spiritual realities in terms that we could connect with and understand. And finally, man, his parables have transcended time. Like the symbols that he used weren't just symbols that meant something to the people in that time. 
there's still symbols that we know today. Like there's still sheep, there's still farmers, there's still coins, there's still sons. These are all things, symbols that he chose that have transcended time. So although he spoke these parables and stories 2,000 years ago to a Jewish culture, they still have meaning and purpose for us today. They're still revealing the spiritual realities of God to us today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at our story that we looked at last week because it's going to be the setup for where we're going this week. So Luke chapter 15, if you want to follow along, we'll put it on the screen. You can always pull it up if you remember to charge your Bibles last night. That's always a good thing. So Luke chapter 15, we're going to look at verse number one, and it says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. We just got to stop for a second. That is incredible. Who's coming near him? tax collectors and sinners. One translation says notorious sinners. They were known. It was notable. They were sinning in a way people knew they were sinning. Like those are the ones, like the outcasts, the people like, I don't think you should associate with them. I was talking with Luke uh, earlier because uh, we had a story about me picking up a hitchhiker last week. And Luke picked up a hitchhiker once and he was just trying to do a good deed because it was raining cats and dogs outside. And he was like, this person probably shouldn't be walking in the street. Little did he know that he was picking up a notorious sinner who had different goals and ambitions in life than he did as he picked up a prostitute. And he was like, oh, I was just trying to be a good person. <laughs> My bad. I don't know what people would think if they knew who I just picked this person up. Like, but Jesus wasn't afraid of being associated with these people. Like he's hanging out with the prostitutes. Not only is he like around them, he's like, hey, let's eat. Let's share a meal together. Let's talk. Like he began to treat people not as though they were in a different class as him. He began to elevate people. People that we would choose to ignore, he recognized. People that we would say, I don't really want to associate with them. He's breaking bread and having meals with them. Like people are seeing him eat and do these things. And it's crazy to me that when we think about who would follow Jesus, we tend to think, well, probably like really good people, people who, who are religious. Those are the ones that would follow Jesus. Just the opposite. The people who wanted to follow Jesus were the people that you would think, no, they don't probably want anything to do with Jesus. They'd probably feel guilty. They'd probably feel bad. Like he's holy and they're not. But this here says they were coming near to him. They were pushing into Jesus because, man, we got to hear what he's got to say. We got to hear him. Tax collectors. Nobody likes tax collectors now. They didn't like him then. They really didn't like him then because they were abandoning their heritage. They were Jewish in nature, but they said, we're not going to identify that way. We're going to work for the Roman government instead. We're going to tax you and give your money to our oppressors. And I'm going to just cut some extra for me too. Nobody liked the tax collectors, but the tax collectors, for whatever reason, they like Jesus. And the notorious sinners, they like Jesus. So in our story, this is the setup. We can't forget that this is what's happening. Jesus is here and he's eating with them. It says that, and both the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain. Like they're complaining, never good to complain. But this man, Jesus, like he's receiving sinners and he's eating with them. Ugh. There's like disgust in their voice. Like I can't believe that he is doing this. What kind of man is he? What kind of man of God would, would behave in, in this manner. And verse three is, is so cool because it says, and so he told them this parable. So this is going on. He's sitting here. He's eating with them. He's hanging out with them. And they're like, oh, who does he think he is? So Jesus, he just said, hey, let me tell you a couple of stories. This is his response to why he is eating with these people. And here's what he said. as our story from last week. And uh, what man among you, if he has 100 sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the other 99 in the open pasture and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he puts it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost. And Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way, here's our symbolism, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need for repentance. This is his response to the complaint that you're hanging out with sinners. Hey, I'm telling you, 99 sheep, 
going for one. That's the kind of God we serve. His heart is for the one. He doesn't just love the group. He loves the individual, and he is doing everything he can in a passionate pursuit. He is going to go until he finds the one and reunites it. And there's more joy in heaven when one sinner repents than for 99 people doing good. And then he doesn't give them a break. He doesn't let them respond. He doesn't let them say anything. He just continues with the next story, which is what we're going to look at today. Verse 8, or, Jesus says, here's our next story. What woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. And in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Last week we talked about a lost living animal. This week we're talking about a lost inanimate object, a coin. Have you ever lost something before? Isn't it the worst? According to a survey from a few years ago, Americans are spending two and a half days per year looking for misplaced items. They said, uh, here's the most misplaced items. Uh, TV remotes. Anybody ever found their TV remote in the refrigerator? Just by a quick show of hands. Yeah, I was like, where did that thing go if it was in the fridge? Uh, phones. People are always looking for their phones. You guys ever been there? Like, I don't know where my phone went. Uh, trying to find your car in a parking lot. Trying to find your car keys. Anybody ever gone to like a, like a Royals game and you forgot what lot you parked in? And then you're like, somebody stole my car. I'm sure of it. And you're just like two lots away. Yeah, been there. Uh, glasses. People are always looking for their glasses. Where did I put my glasses? Where did those go? Um, or shoes. All the teenagers are like, yeah, what happened to my shoes? I can't find those. Um, wallets, purses, that's on the list. These are all things that people lose on a regular basis. I don't know about you, but I can't hardly do my laundry every week without losing a sock. I don't know what happens. Like, I, I knew I wore a pair yesterday. I put it in dirty clothes. I did my laundry. I'm missing a sock. I don't know what happened to it. It's really frustrating. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I set up the trampoline in the backyard for the boys. So I took down like the mat to try to save it because, you know, winter's not good to it. So I was going to get out there. I was going to set it up. And I had this really cool tool that you would use to pull the spring onto the frame. I couldn't find that tool. I found all the other trampoline stuff. Where's that tool? I turned the house upside down looking for that thing. Amazon.com. I'd buy another one. I could not find it. It's horrible. Horrible. My wife and I, we moved uh, our first house we, it was great. We were able to move. So we packed everything up. We got to the new house and I don't know what happened, but we are missing like half of a plate set. Like we had, it was a four plate set. We don't have two of the plates. I'm like, what happened? We used to have like a whole bunch of forks. Now we have like half the forks. We used to have, I had these awesome bowls that I liked from like the 1990s. They were my favorite bowl. They were great mixing bowls. She lost them. I, I mean, we lost them. I don't know what happened to them, but we never found them. All right. It was really, it was hard. It was rough. I, uh, years ago, I was, I, was, uh, I was biking in Smithville, and uh, I got my bike on the back of the car, and I was driving home, and I looked in the passenger seat for my phone, and the phone wasn't there. And I thought, oh no, where's my phone? I don't know where my phone went. And so I was like trying to replay it in my head, and then I was like, oh, I had set my phone on top of the car when I put the bike on the back of the car, and I must have got in the car and not grabbed the phone. And so I turned around, and I backtracked, and yep. Right in the middle of the road was my phone, and it no longer worked. And I was like, ah, so frustrating, so frustrating. If you've ever lost something of value, you know that sinking feeling that you get, like, oh, no, this is going to cost me money. I've lost it. It's got nostalgic value to me. Oh, I, don't, I just, I, I hate it. Um, my wife and I, we know a couple who literally turned their house upside down looking for the wife's wedding ring. She doesn't know what happened to it. She thought maybe she took it off when she was washing dishes. So then like, they're literally getting like, plumbers over there to take the traps off and say maybe it fell down. Uh, they went through the trash. They got, maybe it fell in the trash can. They were going through all the trash. Never found it. One of a kind. It's what your husband gave you. And you didn't want to lose it, but somehow it's lost. And, and they've since moved. And 
they've just had to come to peace with. I don't know if we'll ever have that ring again. I read online that in America, this is crazy, $2.7 billion is spent each year to replace lost items. We lose stuff all the time, and there's a cost to us losing it. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Stefan Thomas. Uh, Stefan was a programmer living in Switzerland. And in 2011, he edited a video for a company, and they paid him in Bitcoin, which Bitcoin in 2011 wasn't a thing. And so he received a payment of 7,002 Bitcoins at that time, which was worth about $6,000. And so he received the payment. He placed his Bitcoins on this high security device known as an iron key. And what the device does, it allows you to have 10 attempts at your password to unlock it. And if you don't get it in 10 attempts, it encrypts it forever and essentially deletes everything that's on it. You can't access it anymore. So he got this high security device and somehow or another, he forgot the password. Last week, Bitcoin was setting at around $30,000 per coin, which means that Stefan's 7,002 Bitcoins are now worth about $210 million. And he doesn't have the password. So he, had, he has right now two attempts left. He's guessed eight times. He said, man, I would just lay in bed and I think about it. <laughs> and then I'd go to my computer with a new strategy and I'd type it in and it wouldn't work and I'd just be desperate again. Can you imagine? You got 200 and some million dollars and you can't access it. There's another guy in Wales. His name's James Howe. He accidentally threw away a hard drive that had 8,000 Bitcoins on it, which would be about $240 million today. And that was nine years ago. He is still trying to get local authorities to let him into the city dump so that he can search for it. And uh, they, they estimate there's 110,000 tons of garbage there. And he's like, I will give you millions of dollars if you'll just let me in. And they're like, you, no, it's not safe. You can't go in there. Can you imagine losing something of that value, you would do everything you could to try to get it back. Well, in our parable, there is a woman who loses an important possession, and she does what all of us would do. She is urgent about searching to recover what was lost. And I think most of us, especially Stefan and James, they can empathize with the woman. Her frustration, her panic in losing something of value. Verse 8 says, or, or what woman if she has 10 silver coins and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully for it. Uh, I want you to notice that this is not a rich woman. She doesn't have gold coins. She has silver coins. She doesn't have a whole bunch of them. She has 10 of them. Uh, these were called drachma in the original language. And one drachma, one silver coin, was worth one day's wages for just a basic laborer. So you went and did a laborous job, you got one of these coins. So she has essentially 10 days worth of pay, and she's lost one of them. Some scholars estimate that, you know, this money might have been used for, like, maybe this was the whole family savings. And so it's really important. This is all the money that we have to our name. And she wanted to find it. Others say this is probably a single woman. And this was a part of her wedding dowry. This is a part of what she was going to bring in to her future relationship. And so and when she loses one, she is desperate to find it. Uh, other indicators that show that this woman isn't well off is that she doesn't have like a butler. She doesn't have a maid. She doesn't have somebody else in the house to help her look for it. Um, she's the one who's assigned the task to, to, to find what she's lost. So she's the one who lights a lamp and sweeps the house. And there's no indication that this is at nighttime. And so at that day and time, a lot of small homes that poor people would have wouldn't have windows in them. They'd have a low doorway. So even if it was bright outside, you may not be able to see inside your house. And then it's not a floor like we think of where you've got like a wood floor or ceramic tile. No, no, this is like an earthen floor. It, it may have been dirt. It may have had rock. So to sweep that, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a case. I don't know if you've ever swept dirt before, but like, that's a trip, you know? And so it's possible this coin could have fallen and it's just underneath a layer of dirt. And so this woman is desperate to find it. She's lighting a lamp and she is sweeping every, what do they say? Nook and cranny. I don't even know what those are, but she is looking in those nooks. She's looking in those crannies for this coin. 
Now, in the story, you and I represent the lost coin. You and I are that coin that is lost. And the first point that I want to make this morning is this, is that you have inherent value. You have inherent value. Just as this woman was searching her house for a coin, even though the coin was lost, the value of the coin never changed. I have a, I have a $20 bill right here. This is worth $20. If I lose this, guess what it's still worth? $20. The status of where this is doesn't change its value. And just because the coin was lost and just when you and I are lost does not mean that our value has diminished at all. You have inherent value. The problem is, is that if I, as the owner, am not holding this $20 bill, it has no use. It has essentially been wasted. Does that make sense? It's got value, but if it's not in my possession and I don't know where it is, it's a loss to me. The value that it possesses cannot be used for any good. It can't be spent. It cannot be exchanged. It cannot be be used in any way. And so the fact that there's a coin that is lost means that there is value on the table that can no longer be used. It can't be spent. It's, it's essentially wasted until it is found by the owner. Now, if these coins represented a family savings or if they represented a wedding dowry, that means that these coins weren't just like leisure money. They weren't just like cash in your pocket. These coins represented value for a specific purpose. They were to help the future marriage. They were to help the family in times of need. This money was, was set aside. It was set apart for a specific purpose. And the fact that it's lost means that the purpose cannot be accomplished. And so it's desperate. We need to find it so that that coin that represents value can be used in a way to bring, a part, bring about the purposes that it was intended for which is point number two here for you, is that your purpose can only be fulfilled in the hands of your owner. We so often want to find fulfillment and meaning in life. And so we try to do things to fill that void. Like, I want to feel significant. I want to feel important. Maybe if I get a job that pays better money, or maybe if I do a work that feels like I'm doing something, I'm, I'm contributing, I'll have a sense of fulfillment in myself. But anytime that we search for fulfillment, we search to fill that void without God being involved, we always end up empty. Because when you achieve what you achieve, when you get the amount of money that you should have, when you have the amount of material possessions, whenever you achieve whatever you think it is you want to achieve, it never satisfies if God's not involved. Because your purpose can only be fulfilled in the hands of your owner. It's as the owner, as this woman finds the coin that then that coin can serve its original purpose. And in the same way, when we are lost from the hands of God, when we don't allow him to find us and to use our value in the way that he described, we miss it. And so we need to allow him to determine our purpose. We need to allow ourselves to be in the hands of our owner because that is the only time that we will ever experience true purpose and fulfillment. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's handiwork, which means he's the one who created us. The inherent value that we have was bestowed upon us by him. And the value he gave us was for a specific purpose. We may do all sorts of things, but if we're not doing what we were made for, then we're not fulfilling our divine purpose. So in the first part of this parable, the woman behaves as one might expect. She's searching for this lost coin diligently, and she is not going to stop until she finds it. But her response in actually finding the coin is a bit perplexing. Look at verse number nine with me. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. This is a weird response. This is not what I would do. I'd be like, I'm so glad I found that. Nobody's got to know. I lost my coin. <laughs> but she has this great joy. 
It's like a joy she can't contain. I've got to share the joy with somebody. Like, this is so exciting. I found this. And so she invites over friends and neighbors to rejoice with her, most likely to share in a festive meal. But let's not forget, she's poor. She has 10 silver coins. And now with her 10 silver coins, she's going to throw a block party and possibly feed everyone. As Richard Vinson comments on this, that hardly seems reasonable since she is likely to spend more than she recovered. And as a relatively poor person, she has 10 drachmas, she can ill afford to act like she has money to burn. And this leads us to our final takeaway today, number three. God always gives more than he takes. God always gives more than he takes. In in the final verse of the parable, we read that in the same way, I, I tell you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The woman had nine coins. She had lost one. She recovers that one coin, that one day's wages, and then throws a party, invites everybody over, spending more than what she recovered. I don't know about you. In my American mind, that don't make no sense. In my eyes, hey, let's just count our losses. Don't find the coin. And I have more money when it's all said and done. But this is saying, no, no, no. She recovered it but she's willing to spend more on the celebration of her finding it than she originally had. That is not a human response. That is not anything that any of us would do. And God is saying that's what it's like. Jesus is saying like in the presence of the angels of God, that's what's happening here. There is a celebration that far outweighs the value you brought to the table. Now this is wild. This is a whole different picture of God. See, when you're found by God, your owner, he goes all out and he pours out some sort of lavish generosity, just as the woman did when he finds one repentant sinner. It's not a good deal on paper for God. It seems like a loss to him. The value that was wasted and unusable when we were lost isn't fully redeemed because he's spending more on the celebration of finding us. And it begs the question, why would he try to find us? And I think we have to say our God always gives more than he takes. See, I think you know this, but you may have forgot, but you and I, we aren't worthy of being found. We have done nothing to deserve the attention of an almighty God to pursue us. Essentially, we have done everything in our power to offend this God. We have said, we're going to do life my way, not your way. I'm going to go about my desires and not your desires. And somehow or another, while we were still sinners and we were lost, he loved us enough to pursue us, to find us. And the value he gets by saving you doesn't equate to the value that he spends in celebrating you. I don't deserve this. I have become a recipient of God's lavish generosity. As I've been thinking about this this week, I don't know any better illustration to talk about this than when I was a kid and I had a $5 bill. And there was somebody in my life, an adult, that wanted to give me a gift. And so they had a $20 bill. And they came to me and they said, Alex, do you want this $20 bill? Well, yes, I want that $20 bill. The adult said to me, then give me your $5 bill and I'll give you this 20. Now, from my perspective as an adult, that's a great deal for me. I'm coming out $15 ahead. I should make the trade. But as a child, what did I think? Well, but this is my $5. 
Like, I got this in my birthday card. This has significance to me. Grandma gave this to me. She even wrote, I love you in the bottom of the card. And I got the five dollars. This is my five dollars. Like, I don't know if I want to give my five dollars for your twenty dollars. Which doesn't make any sense. But I think sometimes we are in that same mode. God is like, I am going to give you the best deal ever. You give me your life, and I'll give you eternal life. It, they don't even compare. They're not even on the same page. But, but we are like, but, but this is my life, and I like it. But do you like it as much as what I have to offer? Well, no, I want, I want to hold on to my life and have your life. Well, that's not how this works. You selfish little booger. Like, <laughs> there's an exchange that has to be made. And I think that we sometimes find ourselves like, as a kid, it's like, but I've had this $5. I've cherished it. I kept it on my piggy bank. It means something to me. And he's like, if you will just lay that down, if you will give that up, I will give you more than you can handle. I will, give, I will be so generous to you. The exchange isn't equal. God's coming out less. But he doesn't care. He has everything. Would you make the deal? Would you let him give you eternal life in exchange for your life? So as we take a look at this story of the woman who has lost a coin and she's desperately pursuing it and finds it and celebrating it, it is a sign of how God is with us as sinners. He loves us enough to pursue us. We have inherent value. But what he wants us to do is to be used for his sake. And if we'll exchange what we hold on to for what he has, we always come out on the winning side. God gives more than he takes. And so this morning, the question is for you, have you been willing to lay down your life to embrace the life God has for you? Have you been willing to say, I know what I desire and what I want and what my goals are and what my vision is and what I thought life was supposed to be? Are you willing to say, I'm going to lay that down in faith of believing that God, you know what my life is really meant for. You know my purpose. You know how I can experience fulfillment. I want to embrace all that you have for me. It's a step of faith, but I'm here to tell you, you're not the first one to make the step. I've made the step. It's worth it. There's people around you who've made the step, and they would say, totally worth it. But you have to be willing to let go in order to receive what God has for you. So are you willing to let go of your old life for a new life? Are you willing to let go of what hasn't worked for you, but you've grown attached to, to embrace something new and exciting that you were designed for? I believe that God wants you to. And I believe his Holy Spirit is moving. And if there's a thing in you, you're like, I don't know if I've done that. I don't know if I've stepped over that line. Man, today could be the day that you experience new life. Today could be the day you go from being lost to being found and back in the hands of the owner. So if you say, yeah, Pastor, I want, I want that. I want to start that journey. I don't know what it all means, but I want to take that first step. Well, it starts with you having a conversation with God. It starts by you telling God, yeah, I've been trying to do life on my own and it hasn't worked. God, I want to ask you to forgive me for making a mess of things. And God, I want to, I want to, I want to embrace this new life that you have for me. And if you're willing to say that and mean it, I believe that God's going to meet you right where you're at. And he's going to do something on the inside of you to change you, to change your heart. He begin to, a process of transformation. And I believe a year from now, you won't recognize the old you. Five years from now, you'll be even more changed. And you'll become a person of love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, things that you can't manufacture on your own. So if you want to step over that line, here's what I'm going to ask. Let's all just bow our heads. And for that person who is here, who says, you know what? I want to begin this process. I want to begin this new relationship. Just between you and God in this moment, he knows your name. He knows who you are. He knows the value that you possess. He created you. He's going to hear you as you just say, dear Jesus, forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for doing life my way. I want to do it yours. And then just ask him, God, would you make me new? Would you take away the old and replace it with, with new? And if you're making that decision, if you're saying that to God, oh man, 
there is a party in heaven in the presence of the angels of God right now that are celebrating and saying, yes, we have reached another. One was lost, but now they're found. God, I thank you that you love us enough to pursue us. I thank you that although it costs you more to find us than it does to leave us lost, Lord, you're willing to pay the price. And Lord, ultimately you paid that price through your son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life so that we might have eternal life. I ask today, God, that we would pursue you, that we would begin a journey of following you. And Lord, if this is anyone's first day to make this decision, Lord, may they follow it up each and every day by saying, this life is not my own. I now am living the life Jesus wants. I thank you for this opportunity we've had to look at this amazing parable that you shared 2,000 years ago as it still speaks to us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.